everyone. Welcome to another episode of Treating You, presented to you by Bart's Health. This is the podcast that gives a voice to our 18,000 staff, shines a light on their day-to-day working lives, and show you, the public, some of their amazing stories and experiences. In this podcast, we chat to the people to who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients, everyone from porters and therapists to midwives, doctors, and ward clerks. We discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey, and how they treat you. In 2021, 30 teenagers were murdered in London, surpassing the peak of 29 in 2008. Most of these victims were killed by a knife and many of the victims were killed by other teenagers. Some of these victims were gang members and some were not. The youngest victim was 14 years old. In this episode, we are speaking to a man who's been trying to tackle this problem of interpersonal violence in his role at Bart's Health. Martin Griffiths, CBE, is a consultant trauma surgeon at the Royal London Hospital and the first national clinical director for violence reduction at NHS England. Martin helped set up a service for young patients injured through violence, providing support to victims while they are being treated on the wards. Some victims were innocent bystanders, others were gang members themselves. The scheme has reduced the number of young people returning to the hospital with further injuries from 45% to less than 8% in six years, and the programme has halved the readmission and imprisonment rates. In this episode, we discuss why he's so passionate about tackling interpersonal violence in the capital. That includes crimes committed with knives and other deadly weapons. We talk about the social, economic and environmental factors about why teenagers become sucked into gang culture, violent one-upmanship, social media, the cycle of violence and the pastoral collaborative work he has done in these communities to empower people and instigate positive interventions to put these young people back on the right path. This is how Martin Griffiths, CBE, is tackling trauma and reducing violence in the capital. Martin Griffiths, CBE, welcome to this episode of Treating You. I feel blessed to be in the presence of, of a CBE and uh, I hope I do as good a job as I know you've done so many interviews in the past. So how are you and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm in, in great form actually um, uh, at work today, um, enjoying the uh, almost sun and uh, looking forward to uh, Easter holidays. Brilliant. Before we dive into the episode, can you just first tell me briefly, Martin, how and why you got into healthcare, maybe your journey into Bart's Health and where you are today? So it's really interesting. I'm sort of an accidental doctor, really. I fell into it via sixth form when I was thinking about a career in uh, the Air Force as an, as an aircraft mechanic. And I was persuaded to apply for medical school by my tutors. They thought I had uh, more to offer. That's an interesting part of my journey, really. I was always being undervaluing myself. So I uh, went to medical school, really loved the people, really loved the place, really loved the atmosphere and actually never had the imagination to leave Bart's Health. I've been in and around London area pretty much all of my career and I chose surgery because it was harder. I chose trauma because it was harder still and I worked with the talented people who supported me and my diversity throughout that period of time. And I love looking after sick people. I love looking after Londoners. I love being a Londoner and I really enjoy being able to offer more than just clinical care, working with communities, working with people working with young voices and giving those voices the, the access to power in their own agency. Moved them to me to other places looking at strategy around violence reduction and stuff now and right now I'm still a clinician still practicing but also I work with NHS London and NHS England to conceive and deliver violence reduction programs for healthcare and beyond. We're both Londoners, so we can share that. We can share that commonality. This episode is going to be all about interpersonal violence, Martin, as this is your area of expertise and your role in tackling it. Now, for the listeners who might not be aware, it's what author Kieran Thapar in his book Cut Short describes as the invisible war 
taking place in the capital. So can you tell me what interpersonal violence is for listeners who don't know, maybe the situation on the ground right now and how we've got to this place where 30 teenagers were murdered in 2021? It's a really interesting question. I think violence between people and communities has always existed. It's endemic within all kinds of societies. It's more common in conurbation than driven by deprivation, so poverty, and seen much more commonly in, in disadvantaged communities, those particularly around those around ethnicity and diversity. So people of colour and also those communities like Rema and Gypsy are much more uh, likely to be victims and perpetrators of violence. I think that I mean, what we see primarily in our area is, inter- is violence between young people. It's often our, our most common age is about 16 years old, but sort of the late teenage is very common into the practice. And I think that from my point of view, I'm really interested in trying to understand where that violence comes from and how we can support both the communities and the individuals who are affected by violence. Mm. In your role, you've obviously been doing that for, for quite a long time. But when did you think this was not just a problem, but maybe a crisis or even worse than that? Was there a light bulb moment? And, and, and how do you kind of view the situation right now? It's kind of hard, really. I grew up in a quite a violent part of London, so I've always seen once as part of normal life, as it were. It wasn't until I became a practitioner and worked in trauma care, I saw it being a day-to-day thing. So we saw every day we'd see two stabbings, two shootings a week coming in through our doors at the Royal London. And when I saw the acceptance in the eyes of the young people, the educators and their families, I realised we'd gone far too far. We had to do something about it. I've always worked with communities and schools to try and understand people, people's motivations to be more of themselves. But what we had to do as a healthcare system was try to combat this violence in practical terms in our footprint and take a leadership role in delivering change in that space. Mm. You told me off air that the current numbers suggest that reported crime is down in London for a variety of factors. Can you expand on that for me? As there'll be some listeners who might hear about, you know, another teenager murdered in a certain part of London and, and question how that can be true. Yeah, it's a difficult one. I'm, I'm not a criminologist, I don't really talk in terms of crime figures, but I accept that's where we see the most activity in the media around violence. So if we look at how many people... London's a, a very safe city. 8.5 million people a year in, live in London. 100 murders a year, so 120. So there's not a huge number, but the concerns around violence and criminality are real and apparent. What we see is a lot of reported crime, be that weapon-enabled crime, interpersonal violence, robbery rape, etc. And we know that over, over COVID, numbers of, uh, have, have decreased. We, re- we receive reports of less injuries and less crime and offence occurring, partially because of there being less people on roads, less people about, and better detection. And actually, I think that what, we, what we're seeing now is a decrease in certain forms of crime, whereas we see an increase in number of events affecting younger people. So you're absolutely right that we are seeing more young people affected by violence and more injuries, fatal injuries occurring in younger people. Tell me more about the programme you've created to reduce repeat visits from these victims of the Hospital Martin of interpersonal violence. And I said in the intro that the scheme has reduced the number of young people returning to the hospital with further injuries from 45% to 8% in six years, which is a remarkable achievement. So how did you do it? Well, it wasn't me to refer to say... (laughs) I think, I think the first thing to say is that we recognise that we, we provide superb clinical care for victims of violence, but unfortunately people come back for a variety of reasons. I think because the, 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 the drivers that affected that violence and the need to retaliate that and that narrative were never challenged. So what we do is put in place individuals to sort of interrupt that narrative by putting in caseworkers who actually ask us awkward questions and provide practical support to young people and their families. We can start asking people, what do you need? What do you want? And who are you? 
And what can we put in place to provide you that support and make your discharge home safe, your transition back to community safe? And what can we do to make your life to our choices more your own choices rather than reacting to circumstances around you? Don't feel the need to react to violence, to, to handle your own business, to retaliate. And how can we get you back on an even keel? This programme started with two caseworkers almost seven years ago on, on 12D on the trauma ward, uh, providing support, working out, working with two mobile phones and, and, a, and a dodgy internet connection. <laughs> and that's grown into half a dozen people, a community service now spread across half the EDs in London, emergency departments in London, providing fantastic care. And at the Royal London, moreover than just providing this, this interruption piece for the individuals concerned by violence, it's actually changed our culture. Our violence reduction team help us co-lead our practice. We've changed our practice. We've changed how we interact with our patients, how we listen to our families, how we deliver that care. And it's changed how these young people engage with their care, engage with their own selves, and go back towards school, education, training, and back towards their families. It's a really fantastic piece of work. There's a famous saying that it takes a village to raise a child. So what you just said there, is it about this holistic approach to care and involving all these different, I don't want to say the word stakeholders, but different parts of the community to be able to empower not just the young person, but the family too, to make that change? I think that's part of it. I think the, the important thing about it is giving that individual a voice and listening to it. Everybody we know knows right from wrong. Everybody knows what circumstances are. Everybody makes the least bad choice in adverse circumstances. But they very rarely have the opportunity to have a proper conversation and be heard and be given the leverage to change their own lives. And what our programme does is allow those young people to actually have that conversation, give themselves real options and work with bodies that are directed towards their support and give those individuals the step they need to make those choices. And delivering that real tangible change, it changes your entire perception of the world engagement with authority, how you see yourself, how you move things forward. And that's why these young people, given the appropriate support and the appropriate agency and empowerment, make better choices and live happier lives. Mm. A lot of the kids that have been victims of these interpersonal violence, Martin, as we both know, a lot of them are gang members who have, or have fallen into gang culture. And this is you know, because of a few reasons. We went to school with probably a lot of them. The desire to make quick cash, a desire to feel loved or belonging, which they might not be getting elsewhere or a survival mechanism, which then generates social status. So how do you tackle each of these factors and maybe other factors when they might talk to you or they might explain reasons for falling into this culture? And how do we keep them away from the roads once they've left it? Brilliant question. I think, I think that gang's a tricky, tricky one because I think, I think nobody can redefine the gang very, very well, but it can be anything from a sort of social grouping on the corner through to organised crime. And that's all in one piece. But you're correct, correct the, the most creative thing is the gang culture, that narrative about handling your own business, about significance, about having to do for yourself and not engaging with traditional authority because that doesn't work for you. And I get all of that. I hear all of that. I grew up on all of that. What we need to do, rather than try to deter it, make a better offer. Nobody wants to be on road. Mm. It's exciting. It's fun, but it doesn't go anywhere. No one wants to be in the cells. No one wants to be arrested. People want to make active choices what we need to do is empower those choices and make those things real. So when someone says to me, can I get a Ribena? It's there because that's a tangible change, okay? And we can build on that relationship to build something that's actually that's actually worthwhile and effective. If someone says to me, I wanted to be in education, we will find access to education or training. We will find alternative provision. We will find a way to translate desire into action. And once you can start to see a pathway to success, you'll stick with it because it actually is deliverable. And I think making, making promises real is what we want to do for young people. Making the actual pathway to success 
deliverable that we're talking about. And when you give somebody that green rather than red, that better option rather than the deterrence, it spreads because that person gets autonomy, they get significance, they get in, they get power, everything that every young person wants and needs, but in a way that is fruitful, that is beneficial, that their parents can be proud of, and they can talk about and celebrate. And, that, and I think that's the key to making life better for everybody. We give people the opportunity to find their own power, their own direction, and make their own choices. And 99.9 out of 100, they're better choices. Mm. I think the importance of role models for these, mostly boys, they're obviously girls as well who get drawn into it, but mostly boys is vital in bringing them back to the right path, Martin. You were keen to talk about the pastoral work you do when we spoke off air. Tell me more about that. So it's interesting, yeah, because role models can work both ways, can't they? They can yeah. be good figures and they can be bad figures. Every nether bloke on the corner is doing well for themselves. He's got all the kit and all the cars and all the people and all the people around him. And that's not a good way to go because it's short-term money. I think that a lot of young people don't see is success inside you who actually are making a success doing things the right way. Everybody knows footballers have done well from their area. What they don't know is the years of training they put into it and dedication. And they're 0.001% as well, by the way. <laughs> exactly. But it's, but it's important to see that, that you can, that your, that your origins, okay, and your situation don't define your future. What I do an awful lot of work is with young people. And I, I say to them, what do you want to be? What can you do? Walk with me. I can do this. I'm not particularly smart. I'm not in my class. I'm not particularly good at football, anything like that. But I'm good at I'm good at understanding programs. I'm good at enduring things. I'm good at I'm good at finding a way. And if you need support, we all we all fall over. Okay, we all fall down. We all make mistakes. We all fail exams. We all fail tests. Important of that holistic support is actually picking you up and making a mistake, forgiving people when you make mistakes, understanding why you make bad choices, and and finding a way around it. A good friend, a good supporter, a good colleague, a good parent, a good role model isn't just telling you be like me it's how can I help you be like you and you take a little bit more, more of the blame for those failings a little bit more a little less of the credit for who do well and you help someone find themselves and that's what really works and I, I don't, I'm not asking people to be anything like me I wouldn't want anybody to be like me at all it's, it's a weird job that I have and a weird life that I live but I really want people to understand that they have the power within themselves to find their own lives and their own futures and that's the key to pastoral support it's about making people see the beauty within themselves not, not what, it's not about you. I know you're amazing. You don't believe it in yourself. And then time will start to believe it. And then you'll, believe, then you'll perform to your true potential. And that's what it's all about. I want to talk about factors which influence interpersonal violence now. Because the environment for today's youth is a completely different and sometimes I think bonkers world to the one I grew up in, Martin. I'm sure you grew up in. And I only left secondary education for university in 2012. And one of the massive changes that has taken place is the rapid explosion and proliferation of social media and different diversification of social media platforms. Now, back in the day, beef wouldn't be created and fueled online because everyone had Nokia 3210s if we even had that. <laughs> and the evidence, the evidence of it certainly wouldn't be there after it happened either because the camera was basically filming on a potato. So yeah. that's not the case now, is it? So I don't think you can do anything and keep it secret. And you wouldn't want to, would you? Why if you do something really significant, you not want to celebrate it and get that feedback because everybody wants to be significant. It's not surprising that every detail of someone's life is, is, is shared everywhere and it's fed back by everybody. So you, somebody you never met and you're never going to meet give you credibility by liking a comment or liking a post and making you feel powerful. So you're much more likely to link into that kind of a narrative. And therefore, everything happens online. All things happens instantaneously. And you know what well as I do, when you're younger, you're in the moment. It's instantaneous. Things happen like that. So you can go from zero to 100% 
in a matter of seconds. Therefore, any kind of beef, any kind of issue can be accelerated and, and driven to crazy levels in no time. It doesn't take much from a comment to circulate someone to be snaked online. It doesn't take anything more than a misplaced word misunderstanding or, or some additional support or narrative from third parties to make you feel you have to do something. Okay, Social media is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful for the right reasons, but it also creates silly dancing and falling out of buildings and eating crazy food and doing stupid things and also violent acts and pejorative narratives, okay, rather than celebrating things. And we can use this information much more positively. For every young person right now, they're sitting there being judged silently mm. and not so silently by the whole world online about how you look, how you sound, where you're from, what you wear, what you eat, how you cook, how you walk. And so it's very difficult to understand where your place in the world is when the whole world's staring at you all the time. And the opportunity to be an individual, to fail, doesn't exist now. You can't fail in private. You can't fall over without being laughed at. You can't be imperfect. You can't be a little bit fat or a bit short or a bit slow. You've got to be perfect all the time, and therefore you've got to be bulletproof and hard and ready all the time. And that's incredible pressure. Even for me on social media, I can't put a foot out of place. <laughs> because if I do, I'll get a load of trolling yeah. narratives. You know, I've got, in, I've got in trouble with Donald Trump over one tweet years back, and it created, created all kinds of hassle for me. So I know what that feels like. Mm. So the, feel, the need to perform all the time and always be vigilant makes things very difficult for you. And I recognise that that is the one big thing change that's changed in the recent past. However, where there is a challenge, there's also opportunity. There's a community of people out there, nerds like me, weirdos like you, who can share positivity, share support, share a different kind of narrative. So wherever, where there is a potential negative narrative, there's also a huge amount of support, positivity, community collaboration in the same space it's about using that social media space that internet space for good for support for empowerment for agency for forgiveness for education rather than for negative terms or for pejorative terms or for violence or for celebrating doing horrible things horrible people mm. We both know of several infamous examples where teenagers have taunted each other over social media apps like Snapchat, either arranged fights or been ambushed by other teenagers when they see them on the road. It's even resulted in violence in the form of stabbings or even sometimes death. And, and Michael Irving was one such teenager in London this happened yeah. to. And I'm sure there's others outside the capital who have been murdered in similar ways. Now, this is a secret world for most parents. So how do they get on top of it? And is the reality as bad as I've described? So the reality isn't as bad as it's described. I think that's a, these are extreme examples, to the first thing to say. But I think it's important for every parent, every individual, to know what your kids are doing online. Not to be a police officer, but to understand what you're doing this and why are you doing this. Is it is, are you getting what are you getting from this process? Is it about information sharing? Is it about is it about significance? Is it about things? Let's do it together. Teach me about this sort of stuff so I can do it. I can do it with you, or explain to me what why this place is important to you. Because I think that's the, the thing. The thing is that it becomes a secret room that mm. kids go to in line of sight. And when you've seen kids out, young people out, dining, three or four of them out clubbing or out, out eating, they're sitting there, four of them together, all on their phones, not talking. There's no communication in that, in that small space, but they're all online and all, they're all connected physically and electronically to the, to the rest of the world. So it's a bit of an odd communication. And then that phone becomes an extra limb that gets cut off when the connection goes down. Mm. For me, what what parents need to think about is developing a curiosity about their children 
about their lifestyle interests. If your kid was playing football, you would ask them about football and go with them. If they're surfing, you ask them what they're surfing is, where they're going. Not in that way to police, but to understand. Because most searches are benign. Most searches are about information, much about education and finding out stuff. But where are you going to go? What are you looking at? Let's go there together. Is it a place you want to go and see? Let's be able to experience something you might talk. We can talk about what we've done there. And it's about using that leverage to enhance your communication with that person rather than to, to use it as a barrier to other stuff. And denying people access to the internet, it's never going to work. That 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 things out of the bottle. It's about using it in a positive way and using it to understand your relationship better and using it to power your journeys, be they virtual or physical, in a, in a different way. Mm. Many people, including you in this space, and you've talked to me about this when we've done media bids outside of this space, Martin, is that the best time of year for many people, the summer, is actually the period you worry about the most when it comes to these kids and interpersonal violence. Can you explain that dichotomy for listeners who might be a bit confused by that? So a lot of interpersonal violence we happen happens when you've got people close together, population density, okay? So people are out and about, kids are out of school, they are online and offline and out and about perhaps often unsupervised or doing things together in groups. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to recognise that when you put young people out together, talking about stuff all the time, and they're out physically meeting, it's not unlikely that beef will be addressed at that point in time. And more it would be fueled, because there's nothing else to do apart from fuel this beef, or talk about this, or talk about that, or go to certain places. And in summer times, most of the kids I, I after aren't going on, aren't going off to the Algarve with their parents for the weekend. <laughs> they're sitting in Saichi, living where they're going to be, and quite rightly so, because it's a good place to be. However, it doesn't take much for a, a long-held or troublesome narrative to come to the surface, and then things happen. Then, so around summertime, we see an awful lot more interpersonal violence, picking those younger kids who aren't going away. I want to reflect now, if we can. So, first of all, how did COVID-19 affect this situation? Was there a decrease in violence? I'm presuming there was during the lockdown. And then did it increase as we came out of it? And what is the situation like now? Well, COVID was a real head turner. So, initially, when lockdown was about to happen, there's a little spurt of gun discharges. Don't quite know what it was all about. People just settle business before they shut down lockers. Right. And then... Everything dropped away massively in the first wave, down to about one third of what we normally see in that around that time. Was, but the devil was in the detail. So incidents between young men on road dropped off to almost nothing. But injuries to females, particularly within the home, stayed the same. Domestic abuse was a thing which we hadn't we hadn't really picked up on in our data. And it was persistent throughout lockdown. So females were still being harmed at a significantly higher rate during that period of time. Now, as lockdown eased and people started going back on road again, we started to see a back to an increase in numbers. And when we first had the first lockdown came out, a big spurt in activity. People were out and about and all business was handled in a short period of time. And we got back to a, a sort of higher level, but still below what we expected to find in that period of time. And we sort of drifted back towards more numbers. And as, as lockdown has eased and, and now fallen to pieces, it's now we're moving, we're moving back towards numbers of activity but i think things have changed in terms of what's happening now because a lot of people are now more online and there's less people going out and about habitually so i think there's a whole cohort of individuals spent two or three years indoors pretty much all the time so getting out and about and recovering that that willingness to be out and about and be exposed is changing so violence isn't what it was okay but we're seeing stuff still happening around school time, school ages. So the younger kids are still out in school and still travelling around. Some of the older is not quite so much. And I think as we recover 
as a society, we move back to more of a pattern. But I'm hoping that with all the work we've done in the interim period, we should decrease the global number of events occurring in London. What has been your proudest achievement doing this work, Martin? Gosh, gosh. For me, it's been a couple of things. The first is seeing young people who we supported write back to us with their stories of them going back to school, going back to career, uh, going to education, going to university, and posting back to them and their mum at Nando's, et cetera, mm-hmm. and living their life and, and, and finding a better way. And seeing the programme expand to other centres and you know, going nationally has been great. But for me, the biggest and most wonderful success has been the programme team. It's seeing the guys who I've been working with for years go from being junior members of case managers to senior case managers to becoming team leaders and national leaders, the guys who are working in the nursing community or who are junior nurses now, matrons and child nurses and doing PhDs and going into bigger programmes, seeing the whole programme team develop, that culture of development. So we are really a, really a small but diverse team who are all really passionate about violence reduction. And, I've, and seeing those guys blossom into clinical leaders themselves has been absolutely fantastic. And for me, the whole piece is about developing that talent in and around, just making it in this hospital um, more accessible, making healthcare more accessible, making what we do more amenable to the community. We're not just about sewing up holes. We're about trying to build a better community and seeing that members of our team become truly powerful, truly influential, true greatly. This is it's incredibly, incredibly humbling and brilliant. And as a final question, what has it taught you about yourself? Has anything surprised you? Do you know what? A couple of things, really. Number one, um, I am very hard-headed. <laughs> I won't take no for an answer. I will bang away at a problem until I find a better solution. But I'm much better at asking better questions. I'm much better at listening. Because I used to be have a fixed view on stuff, and now I t- tend to take time to listen. I'm much more humble about who I listen to and who I will work with. I used to think it's all about doctoring and nursing and degrees, and now I recognise that lived experience is the key. A lot of my life, a lot of my work has been through my own personal experience, my own personal trauma. And I've used that in a positive way to influence how the NHS and the wider system sees violence. And for me, the one thing I've learned about myself and other people is that you can use your lived experience to put for good. If you prepare to process that, think about it, think about yourself and how things affected you, and use that energy, that heat to cook rather than to burn things down, you really can make a difference to yourself and other people's lives. And on that note, Dr. Martin Griffiths, CBE, thank you so much for coming on Treating You. Thank you very much indeed. Have a great day. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Treating You. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to, share it on social media and leave us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. You can also view our media spokespeople there too. Stay safe, look after yourselves and we'll be back soon to treat you with another episode.